Well, I invite you this morning to pray with me before we open our scriptures. Lord, we ask that you prepare our hearts this morning to accept your word as we open it up to read and to learn. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing your word, we may also obey your will. And through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask these things. Amen. Well, I invite you to open up to the epistle of 1 Peter. We're going to plant our thoughts this morning in the first nine verses of chapter 1, although we'll I'll make reference to a few other verses throughout, but that's where we'll kind of hone in on this morning. So this is what the Apostle Peter writes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And together we say, the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In April of 2016, the New York Times ran a front page article with the headline, U.S. Suicide Rate Surges to 30-Year High. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wow, what a way to start a sermon for the new year. Well, stay with me. The article reported that from 1999 to 2014, the overall suicide rate had risen 24%, with the rise over those last eight years in that time span double the annual rise in the first seven. And unfortunately, as time has progressed since the writing of that article, the situation hasn't really improved. According to recent research in the, uh, excuse me, by the National Institute of Mental Health in 2019, suicide was the second leading cause of death for individuals between the ages 10 and 34, and the fourth leading cause among individuals from 34 to 44, and there was two and a half times higher the number of suicides than homicides that year. 
Now, undoubtedly, experts are cited to figure out what is the cause of all this, and it is, uh, these are sobering statistics for sure. And we could look at a number of different factors, social, racial, economic, et cetera. Um, but as helpful as understanding those factors may be, none really get at the root cause, and that is hopelessness. As Americans, it seems that over the years we've become increasingly hopeless in our outlook on life and the state of the world. Just think about some of the recent popular movies and TV shows. They're filled with depictions of end-of-the-world end nuclear and environmental disasters, zombie invasions, and explorations of other kinds of dystopian themes. Popular movies and TV streaming dramas of recent years, although this may date me a little bit, uh, such as Breaking Bad, House of Cards, The Sons of Anarchy, and The Blacklist, just to name a few, all tell stories that are centered on anti-heroes. This even shows itself in literature. As Ayanna Mathis has said, modern writers seem to be flummoxed by joy and seem to, quote, have decided that despair, alienation, and bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. And then, of course, let us not forget just modern news broadcasting, social media, and the phenomenon we call doom-scrolling. So this poses a question that I've been toying with. As believers, how are, the, how are we to... Excuse me, how are we to live in a culture that seems to be so dominated by despair and hopelessness? Well, the short answer is, as a hopeful people, the gospel brings a message of hope for hopeless times, and it reminds us that we have reason, no matter the circumstances, to be hopeful, no matter what we, trials we may be facing, sufferings we may be going through. We have reason to hope, and that is because of the great work that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. As Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's letter to the Christians in Asia Minor is filled with this theme of hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of persecution. And like us, they were also facing difficult times, and they were tempted to despair, and they were tempted to lose their faith and to walk away. Peter writes to remind them that as believers, they have every reason to be a hopeful people. And that this hopefulness makes a difference in their lives. And that's what I want to explore this morning. The three ways uh, in, in Peter's letter that hope makes a difference. So first, hope, as Peter describes it for us, reorients our view to the future. Hope can be defined very simply as the feeling of expectation and desire for something to happen. When we stop and think about it, we can see that our daily lives are filled with all kinds of hopes and desires for things, from the very mundane to the very important. These hopes, of course, change over time. 
We don't hope for the same things that we did as we were children, but we still, as grown-ups, hope the same. This ability to look forward into the future and experience the feelings of expectation and longing is, that make up the act of hoping is part of what makes us human, part of what means to be made in the image of God. This morning, we finished a jar of peanut butter in my house, and one of the things that we do with that is we normally give it to our dog. Now, when my dog sees that a jar of peanut butter, he desires it very much. But he doesn't have the same hopes and dreams and longings for that jar of peanut butter that I do. He doesn't hope to be able to spread that peanut butter all over a nice giant banana, or he doesn't hope and, and long an expectation for tomorrow morning's breakfast to make a giant bowl of oatmeal and put one, maybe two tablespoons of peanut butter in there. No, he's, a stink, he's an instinctual creature that does have desires, but they are, in, they are instinctual and they are immediate. And so part of what it means to be human is to be able to have this ability to make plans to look into the future and have these desires. In other words, we, kind of, we seem to be able to instinctively organize the sequence of our life into a particular story that is leading somewhere. This is how we make meaning, as some say. We just don't, aren't able to, to bear life living only in the present, facing one disconnected event after another, pursuing only instant desire. If we do, we soon find that that leaves us feeling empty and experiencing despair and meaninglessness. We must live with a, at least an implicit set of beliefs that our lives are moving toward some end, building towards some uh, goal, um, however conceived, to which our daily actions are making some kind of contribution. The passage this morning draws on this very aspect of human nature. Peter is constantly reorienting us toward the promised future that is the Christians because of the work that God has done in our lives. If you're taking notes, you can, you can put in verse 4, he speaks of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for you. In verse 5, he speaks of a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 7, he talks about the praise and glory and honor that will happen at the revelation. In other words, the coming, second coming of Jesus. In verse 9, he talks about the obtaining of our obtaining of the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, a future-oriented. And then lastly, in verse 13, he talks about the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's approach to the, to the readers and to the Christians he writes to is pretty clear. Lift their gaze from the present circumstance and fix it on the glorious future that is promised to those who believe. Why? Well, as he started this letter, because we have been born again to a living hope. In other words, true saving faith is never alone, but is always accompanied by expectation of what is yet to come. Thus, hope is built into the very heart of the Christian faith, because God is a God who makes 
and keeps promises. As believers, we must have faith-filled confidence for this future. To know God is to trust God, and to trust God is to trust his promises, and to trust his promises is to be sure of their fulfillment. This is what the Bible calls hope and is what believers are to have, assurance of the future anchored in the promises of God. This, then, is that living hope that Peter is speaking about. Understood rightly, it reorients or makes a difference in our lives by lifting our gaze from the immediateness of our circumstances and fixes our minds on the glorious glorious promises that God has given us. Whenever we're in the thick of difficult circumstances uh, and trials of various kinds, it's so easy to get bogged down and to miss the proverbial forest for the trees. And Christian hope, what it does is it lifts us out of that, um, lifts us out of that narrow view and widens and helps us see that there is a glorious future that, is, that awaits us. So this then leads us to the second difference that hope makes, and that is Christian hope changes the way then we live in the present. Some may think that all this talk about promises and rewards is an escapist mentality, a way to just bury our heads in the sand and not deal with the difficult realities and circumstances in life that are right in front of us. That, however, is not the case. A fundamental truth of human psychology is that how we view the future has a direct impact on behavior. Let me illustrate with a a fictitious scenario. Imagine with me two men who were both recently hired at a factory to do the same job. They will put part part A into slot B and then hand what they have assembled to the next person, and they'll do this for eight hours a day, seven days a week. Now imagine with me that they're also in identical rooms, they're identical lighting, temperature, everything in this case scenario, everything's identical, except there's one thing that's different. One is going to be paid $30,000 at the end of the year, and the other $30 million. Now that mundane job seems to take on a different um, nature to it once you change and put a different motivating factor. Who do you think is going to have more motivation to do his job day in and day out? And uh, the guy is getting paid more. Why? Well, his expectation of the future is greater than the other guy's expectation of the future. And this scenario illustrates the reality that our expectation of the future, in other words, what we hope in, affects the very way that we live in the present. And if it does this with mere temporal rewards, how much more will it do with eternal rewards? Now, coming back to the text this morning, the occasion that prompts Peter to write his letter to these elect exiles in the region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, was the hostile culture they found themselves in. 
They were, as he writes, grieved by many and various trials in verse 6 of chapter 1. In chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about them being rejected by men. And in chapter 4, verse 14, he said they had been insulted for the name of Christ. Living with this hostility, they were being tempted to lose hope and to revert back to their former way of living. To put it another way, they were asking themselves, what's the point of all this? And what did Peter think the antidote for such temptation was? A reminder of the future inheritance and reward that God had promised them so that they could endure the present hardships and have the motivation needed to remain faithful in their daily lives. The very same way we need to be reminded. That's why Peter writes of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, that's kept in heaven. Now, given this future reality, Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 1. The logic here is simple. God has promised you a great reward to be fully received in the future, so remain faithful in the present and live a holy life. In other words, hope in the promises of God should change the, the way we live here and now by providing the motivation we need to endure hardships and live faithfully to God in all that we do. Now, at this point, it can and is sometimes objected that this seems to be a rather improper motivation for living rightly. Am I really saying that the only reason we should live faithfully to God in the present is because of what he has promised to us in the future? Well, based on this passage, yeah, that is exactly what I'm saying. But there is nothing wrong or improper in doing so. C.S. Lewis addressed this very issue in, in The Weight of Glory, and I can't improve on it, so I'll just quote him at length. He writes, If there lurks, and listen, listen closely and intent, intently, this is, this is worth its weight. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
we are so too easily pleased. Well, why does Lewis think this? He goes on. We must not be troubled by the unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards, he writes. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desire that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real love, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get a peerage, that is British titles and ranks, is mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not. Victory bring the proper reward of battle as marriage is a proper reward of love. And then he writes this, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Let me say that again. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. In other words, to be motivated to live faithfully in the present because of what God has promised in the future is not wrong, improper, or mercenary. Rather, it is what our faith is moving us toward. To use Lewis's words, it is the proper reward, the activity of faith itself in consummation. Thus, to continually lift our gaze from whatever trial, hardship, or temptation that we're facing in the present to the reward and inheritance that God has promised us in the future is not escapist, is not mercenary, but rather a powerful, God-ordained means of motivation for faithful living in the present. This, then, is the second difference that Peter's living hope makes in our lives. It dramatically changes how we live in the present. Let me then turn to the third and final point, and that is Christian hope gives us a powerful witness in a hopeless world. The hope that Peter speaks about in this letter not only affects us, but it can also have a profound effect, impact on the world. As I mentioned earlier, we live in a culture inundated with messages of hopelessness as evidenced in literature, blockbuster movies, TV shows, the news, social media, etc. Robert Nisbet, in his book, The History of the Idea of Progress, explains that how in the 19th and 20th century, the Christian notion of a coming kingdom of God uh, became secularized into a narrative of historical advancement, i.e. progress. Christian theology understands history to be linear, to be sovereignly controlled by God, moving toward a day of judgment, justice, and the establishment of God's kingdom. However, Nisbet argues in modern times, this view has been replaced with the story of secular progress. History is still moving toward an end, but that end is not the coming kingdom of God, but toward the establishment of some type of utopian society, some heaven on earth, some best world now, or some best life now. 
In order to achieve this, humanity needs to be continually perfected through education. The created order needs to be controlled through science and technology and social relationships regulated through politics. Then and only then can the imperfections of human nature be overcome, we're told. The planet be saved from destruction, disease and illness eradicated, and a just society established. All this through our own effort and instrumentality. Fortunately, this secular optimism in historical progress continues to crumble before our very eyes. The belief in the perfectibility of human nature through science, education, and social policy first began to collapse after each of the world wars and continues to do so with each failed attempt to establish some kind of utopian world. We're constantly being reminded that education alone cannot overcome the sinfulness of the human heart. Science and technology will never be able to rid our world of disease and death, and politics cannot be our savior. To place our hope in this secular narrative of progress has only produced discontent and despair, in short, hopelessness. And this is where Christian hope comes in. As Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15, that we are to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Because people are longing for real hope that actually makes a difference in their lives, we have a real opportunity for effective witnessing in our culture. As Tim Keller writes, if Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, if he is really the Son of God and you believe in him, all the things that you long for most desperately will come to true, will come true at last. We will escape time and death. We will know love without parting. We will see evil defeated forever. In fairy stories, especially the best and most well-told ones, we get a temporary emotional reprieve from a real world in which our deepest desires are all violently rebuffed. But if we believe the gospel, we are assured that all those longings will be, be fulfilled in real time, space, and history. That is a compelling message that provides a powerful witness to the gospel to a culture desperate for genuine hope. Let me wrap up with this question. What difference does Christian hope make? That's what we've explored this morning. Well, it makes all the difference in the world. Specifically, it reorients our view to the future, enabling us to lift our gaze from whatever difficult trial or circumstance we find ourselves in and fix our attention on the future that God has promised us in Christ. It changes the way we live in the present by giving us a God-ordained means of motivation for faithful living. And thirdly, it gives us a means of powerful witness to a culture that is desperate for genuine hope. That's the difference living hope makes in our lives and in our world. 
And so our challenge then is to go forth and live hope-filled lives of holiness before a watching world that is inundated with despair, knowing that God will make good on his promises for all those who believe. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your word and for the hope that it gives us. We give you thanks that as we enter this new year, um, unsure of the state of our world, the state of our country, the state of anything, that you have given us promises that we can anchor our lives to, that you have made those promises and you will keep those promises. And no matter how difficult life gets, that you have promised us a reward that is beyond what we can even imagine. And that that reward is not something that we have faith here now to earn, but it is something that you graciously give as the fruit of our faith. And so now as we leave this place day by day, week by week, into a watching world, help us to embody this hope so that as the world crumbles around us, people would look at us and say, how do you have hope? And as Peter has reminded us, in those moments, we can make a case, a defense, and give a reason for the hope that you have given us. We thank you for Jesus, we thank you for his cross, and we give you the praise and glory. In his name we pray, amen.